You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. This summer, I uh, read an article in Esquire. It was written by Krista Jones, and in it, she is reviewing a new Apple product. Uh, And I know that's polarizing. Uh, Some love Apple, some hate, but we're all learning to love cross-culturally. So um, (laughs) if you're on the other side, you you can love uh, your Apple-loving or Apple-hating friend. So uh, the product is the Apple Vision Pro, and it comes out in 2024. Uh, It is an uh, an AR, augmented reality set. So this is different than VR, uh, virtual reality. And I don't know much about any of this, but I I did read the article. So uh, virtual reality, I have done that. If you've done that, that's a set of goggles you put on, and it sort of takes you into a game or an experience where you are in an an alternative world sometimes. Um, But this is different. The Apple product um, and all AR products, as I understand, uh, you still have the goggles on, but the person that's wearing them, you can actually see their eyes uh, so that you can see where you are present, it just augments reality where you are by adding enhanced visuals and audio to the space that you are in. So it doesn't transport you necessarily to another world, but enhances the space that you're in, and you control it with your eyes, with your voice, and with uh, sort of subtle movements of your hands. That's how you control the product. In the article, Jones says it's going to change the way we interact um, with content and with each other. Now, the paragraph from her review that struck me uh, is the following. She said, as for the experiences, because you can tune in and out of seeing your surroundings, your space, and other people, you still feel there. Sure, you can watch movies on screens that appear to be as large as a jumbotron, and you can make FaceTime calls where the other person appears to be in the same room with you. But what I found most interesting, and maybe even shocking, was the sense of wonder and awe that it made me feel. What I found most interesting and maybe even shocking was the sense of wonder and awe that it made me feel. Now, that language is telling, and she's not saying that I experienced wonder and awe by being transported into another experience. She's saying I felt wonder and awe, not in a virtual world, but in this one. The reason that stood out to me is because we are all created with a desire for wonder and awe. We are all created with the capacity and the capability of experiencing wonder and awe. We crave that for our lives. Innately, we all desire to be amazed, to wonder, to, be, to see and experience awesome things. We are, we are hardwired for wonder and awe. 
Now, the Apple Vision Pro may be an amazing product. It certainly should be for $3,500 is what it will cost. I have no idea whether it's a great product or not. But I do know this. There is a truer and a deeper and a more authentic wonder and awe that God has created us to experience. And this wonder and awe only comes when we get a glimpse of God himself. It only comes when we see Jesus Christ in his glory. This wonder and awe only comes when the Holy Spirit, God himself, opens our eyes and shows us this kind of God-driven, God-centered wonder and awe. I heard a song recently from the singer-songwriter John Mark McMillan in which he includes this line, Jesus, Jesus, save me from the tyranny of the familiar. Save me from the tyranny of the familiar. Tyranny means an oppressive power. It's usually used as a word to describe a leader or a government. It's an oppressive power. And so what he's saying in that lyric is, free me from the cruel and dominating effects of the familiar. In other words, he's saying, Lord, grant me a sense of wonder and awe. Help me to, to see you. Help me to, to see your presence and your activity in the world. Because minus that, I live under an oppressive power of familiarity. Because we are created not just for the familiar, we are created for the one who is very unfamiliar to us by nature, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are created, as, as, as John Mark McMillan is praying there, to live with a wonder and amazement at God's presence and God's activity in the world. And friends, we must settle for nothing less than that. Oh, get your Apple product, that's fine. But real wonder and amazement will only be found in God. Many of us, if we're honest, we've just lost our sense of wonder about God. Oh, there was a time when you really were amazed by grace. And each day was new as you were learning things. The word of God was alive to you. And fellowship was exciting to you. You couldn't wait to be among God's people to worship with him. The, the adventure, the, the wonder of sharing your faith with another person was, was, was nerve-wracking to be sure, but yet was, made you feel alive. And, and yet now those days seem far behind. We, we've lost a vision for the glory of God, but also for the glorious mission that we are all called to. I, I'm preaching to myself here today. I hope you get something out of it, but I am preaching to myself on this point. It's so easy to just settle for our familiar patterns and to be unaware that God is at work all around us every day, and we just don't see it. We just don't see it. We're we're sort of numb and live unaware, and that's that's why we need the book of Acts. That's why we're studying the book of Acts, because in Acts we get a fresh vision of the exalted Christ and his work in the world among his people to the world. We get a fresh vision that he is actively present 
Jesus is actively present among his people. He is reaching the world. He is building his church. And in the book of Acts, we see that God gives a supernatural power to his people because he's called them to a supernatural mission. The book of Acts is the story of a small, very, very small, insignificant group of people, weak, dependent people who are empowered by the Holy Spirit, and they, as Acts will say, this is a quote, they turn the world upside down. It's an amazing adventure to see what God does through this people. And as we're going to see here in a moment, it's, it's historical for sure, but it's much more than that. It's not just a book to be read and say, wasn't that nice? But it's a book to be read to lift our eyes to Jesus and say, in our day, in my life, in my family, in my church, in my city, in our world, oh Lord, would you do it again? Would you empower your people with a supernatural power that we, by grace, might turn the world upside down with your love? With your love. So today we're going to read the first section, Acts 1. 1 through 11. When you came in, hopefully you received one of these copies of the sort of journal Bible that you could take notes on, just the book of Acts. Man, we've given these out uh, with different books that we've done, but this is by far the the thickest. So this is a significant one because Acts is a long book. But anyway, you can track along in here and take some notes. And if you didn't get one, you're welcome to get up. They're out in the lobby and get one now or get one on the way out. And you can read this throughout the week. You can take notes on Sundays. And if you do, uh, by the end of the series, you'll have a lot of notes on what God spoke to you. It could really be a journal for you of what the Lord spoke to you. It could be something you use in your private devotional time as well. So we provide these um, not just because we think they're kind of cool, but because they really are a tool that can help you track and learn and apply God's Word. So let's read Acts 1, verses 1 to 11, the introduction to the book uh, of the Acts. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into the heaven as he went, behold, two men stood behind, stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven This Jesus whom was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. 
That is God's holy word. Uh, I want to look at three themes in this passage. So I'm not going to talk about every phrase of every verse, but I want to point out three themes that emerge in the passage we just read, which are themes that set a trajectory for the book. They're themes that don't just appear in chapter one, but they're themes like a good introduction that will be followed through the entire book. We'll see, uh, there's more than three themes here, I'm sure, Uh, but I'm just going to talk about three of them today because I think they will set us up for understanding and anticipating what God has for us in the books. This is very, going to be a very simple sermon. Sometimes I do a kind of a complex, here's all the background thing. This is simple. I'm just going to pick three things that I think emerge from the text and, and talk about those because they are um, a foreshadowing of what's to come over the next months as we work through this book. Here's the first one. Jesus is actively present. That's the first idea we get from the very beginning. In other words, Jesus is still at work right here, right now. And I want to contend that we easily forget that. We easily forget that. When we read the Gospels, for instance, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we are rightly amazed by all that Jesus teaches and all of his miracles and the way he reaches out in love to outsiders and marginalized people. We are amazed by all that, and appropriately so. And then what we tend to do is sort of look for a a principle, draw a principle out of that, some kind of principle that could help us with our lives, and and we just sort of walk away. I mean, we, we say, look, that's amazing what Jesus did, but Jesus is not physically here. I can't see him. He's not physically here with me now. So, so the, the best thing for me to do is probably just get an idea, a truth, um, something that I can sort of apply to my life. But the way uh, the author of Acts, who's Luke, the way Luke opens this book is he describes the Gospels as the beginning of what Jesus began to do and teach. Look at verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. So he doesn't say that the Gospels are the ending of what Jesus began to teach uh, or, or the ending of what he taught and did, but they're the beginning of what he taught and did. The Gospel of Luke, Luke, Luke wrote Luke and Acts. It's a two-volume Work, and, and in the first book, work in, in both books, uh, Luke addresses uh, a man named Theophilus. The, word, the name means lover of God, so some people think it's generic, but I think it's best to understand he's writing uh, for a person, to a person, could be a person who could be a patron who actually funded the work, we don't know, uh, but someone who had an interest in the story of Jesus and the story of the early church. He very well could have been a high-ranking official because here he's just called Theophilus, but in Luke, in the introduction, he's called Most Excellent uh, Theophilus, so could be someone of power and uh, rank in society. And uh, at the beginning of this book, we see that Luke refers to his previous book. Uh, in the first book, he calls it verse 1, that was the gospel of Luke. In the first book, I told, you know, all that Jesus began to do and teach, and then he was taken up. So Luke ends with the ascension of Jesus his being uh, taken up into heaven. Acts begins, we just read it, Acts begins 
with Jesus being taken up as well. So here's how the two volumes work. Luke is the story of all that Jesus began to do and teach, and then he is ascended. Acts begins with the ascension and shows us all that Jesus continued to do and teach. The gospel of Luke is all that he did and taught in person, in the flesh, fully God, fully man, the person Jesus, where, how he taught and worked among people physically, and Acts shows how Jesus teaches and works from an exalted position ruling in heaven, but still the ministry of Jesus. Jesus is actively present, and that theme is on every page of the book of Acts. He is on every page. It is so clear that Christ is at work through his people to a lost and dying world. The ministry of the ascended Jesus through his people is a primary idea that will be fleshed out through the entire book of Acts. Jesus is still doing and Jesus is still teaching. Now, to be clear, today there are no new revelations. There are no uh, inerrant, authoritative revelations, teachings of Jesus. We have that. The teachings of Christ, um, whether through his own words or whether through his apostles that append our New Testament, that part is complete. But make no mistake, Jesus is still teaching and Jesus is still speaking through this word. He is actively present speaking. That's why he says he began to teach in Luke, but he's still teaching us today through his word. That when we read the scripture, which is described by Paul as God-breathed, when we read the scripture, the spirit of God speaks to us and teaches us, applies it to our hearts. When we hear his word taught, as we're doing right now, the same thing happens. God speaks to us through his word. God addresses us through his word. Have you had that experience? Um, I, I've had that experience. Oftentimes, I'm standing right here. I've, I've been out the last couple of weeks, and I was in two different churches uh, hearing someone else speak. And in both situations, there were moments in the gathering when the word is being preached where something shifted. I can only say that. Something shifted in the atmosphere. Something shifted in my ears. And all of a sudden, I felt like, oh, this is addressing me. Have you ever heard a sermon in the middle of it? You think, whoa, this is, God is speaking to me. It's like I'm the only person in the room. There's a room full of people, but the Lord is addressing my heart through his written word, which is being declared to me in this moment. Because Jesus is still speaking. Jesus is still doing. The gospels are what he began to do and teach. The book of Acts is what he continued to do and teach, but he is still acting today. When we read the scripture, we, we hear that. What's so interesting about the book of Acts is it's going to record all that he did through the apostles in the early church, but the book ends, uh, it concludes in an open-ended fashion. So it doesn't conclude and say, well, that's it. So everybody get a good principle. Good luck to you all. Hope you get some positive information out of this to live a better life. No, no it's left open-ended that God is still moving by his spirit, applying the scripture to us, the written word, to us, to change us. And he is still saving people when they hear the written word shared through testimony or proclaimed that, that it awakens their heart and gives them new life. 
Everything we're going to read in Acts is historical, to be sure. But it's more than historical. It's God's living word for us today to show us Jesus, to change our hearts, and to call us into the vibrant mission of what Jesus is doing today because he is actively present in this world. It's all that he began to do and teach. He is still doing. Jesus is healing people, as we see in the book of Acts. He is comforting people. He is restoring people. He is saving people. He is engaging a lost world through his word, by his spirit, from his people. Today, he is still doing these things And as we study the book, it's our prayer that God would elevate our vision to see Christ at work and to anticipate his work, to identify his work, and to expect our eyes to be opened in the midst of the familiar that we might be struck with wonder and awe at who Jesus is and what he does. I pray that the book of Acts would sort of wake up the wonder again. And if you've never had wonder, that you would have that sense of wonder again. And that's why the apple illustration is so good, because she says that the experience was that where I'm sitting in the room, it enhances my life so that there's a sense of wonder and awe. That's what the scripture does. Where you are sitting in the room, Christ is present and wants to open your sense of, of who he is and what he does. And it's so easy to lose that. Here's the reality. I know you can lose it 15 minutes after this service and get caught up into whatever the family conflict is because, oh, I thought you were doing this for lunch. Whatever it is, we've all been there. May he wake up the wonder and awe and expectation. Every book of the Bible should stir expectation. But Acts is is unique in this way because it's the story of when Jesus left and poured out his spirit, what happened with the church? How did we get where we are today? How did it, what is the foundation of it? And so we get that in this book. So number one, the idea that's throughout the book, he began to do and teach with the implication that he continues to do and teach through his word and through his people. Uh, he continues to do this. So that's the first idea, that Jesus is actively present in our midst, in our lives. Secondly, the Spirit empowers the mission. The Spirit empowered. These, these aren't alliterations, and they don't rhyme, so I, they may not, I don't have a good memory or a mnemonic device to help you, but, but we gave you a journal so you could write it down. Uh, the Spirit empowers the mission. The book of Acts is certainly about mission, and, but we find from, find from the very beginning that the Spirit empowers the mission. Now, the book of, in my Bible, it says the Acts of the Apostles. I guess that's what the title is in just about all Bibles. But Luke didn't write that. He didn't say, this is the Acts of the Apostles. Someone later came along and described the book as the Acts of the Apostles. Some people say it might better be titled the Acts of the Holy Spirit, uh, which would be a great, which which is great, because the emphasis of the book is not on the Apostles, Uh, the emphasis of the book on looking what God is doing through the apostles. The book is about God and his activity, so I love that, the acts of the Holy Spirit, or the acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles and the church, or, uh, you know, that's pretty cumbersome. So I think acts is what it's called, but it's the acts of the Holy Spirit because we see God at work by the power of the Holy Spirit, and we just see this throughout. Next chapter in Acts 2, Peter's going to stand up and preach a sermon, and do you know what it says? That after he preached the sermon, the hearers were cut to the heart, 
It means the Holy Spirit brings conviction. When the word of God comes, the Spirit convicts. It affects people on the inside, and we see that in the book. We see the Holy Spirit regenerates people. Uh, One day Paul's going to be out in the city of Philippi outside, sees a little prayer meeting, goes up to a lady named Lydia who has her own fabric business, and he goes up to her and talks to her, and the passage says that the Lord opened her heart, and she received the the word of God. What does that mean? That the Spirit opened her heart, and she believed. The Spirit regenerated her. It's what gave her new life is what happened. We see the Spirit regenerating people. In this book, we see the Holy Spirit performing miracles in this book. There's going to be lots of miracles in the book. We see the Holy Spirit granting gifts, people prophesying, uh, people being healed. Um, Next week, we'll see in chapter 2, the gift of uh, uh, tongues being expressed there. We we see that uh, God gives people courage, especially in the face of opposition that the Spirit gives the apostles Uh, words to say when they stand before the uh, Jewish authorities to give an account for uh, someone's healing and give an account for preaching the gospel when they were told not to. And the Holy Spirit gives them words to answer. We see the church praying for boldness and, and speaking the word of God boldly. We'll see that in a few chapters. Stephen speaking the word of God boldly and ultimately losing his life for it. But there is the Holy Spirit is just working in all of these kinds of ways. And so the book of Acts reads as this great event, adventure. Now, we do believe the spiritual gifts are for today. I don't want to oversell something here. I'm not, I'm not saying that, man, once we go through this book, the, everything that happens in this book is going to be happening in your life today. Um, I, I'm not saying that. Though I do think we should hold a much greater expectation that if God is present and if the Holy Spirit is empowering the mission today, God in his sovereignty is free to act however he wants today, and we should welcome uh, his work in us and through us today. And we should lift our, our hope for, I think, a greater empowering for mission, a greater boldness, a greater experience of uh, spiritual gifts, a greater courage to stand up in a world that opposes us, a greater love that unites us together as a people like we see in the book, a greater, uh, a greater heart to take the gospel to our neighbor across the street and our neighbor across the world, all those kind of things that are happening in the book. I think we should be raising our expectation and saying, God, in our day, in our lives, do it again. Break us from the familiar and show us your, your glory. Um, the Spirit empowers the mission. Now, we see the, this, uh, this, the importance of the Spirit from the very first verses. So we see the, the resurrected Lord is teaching his disciples. Um, verse 3, he presents himself to them after, suffering, after his suffering by many proofs. Uh, he appears to them during 40 days and speaks to them about the kingdom of God. So he's, I mean, that's amazing, right? Sitting down with the resurrected Lord and he's teaching you stuff. And pretty much no one's, you know, no one's dozing off in that lecture. I assure you, the resurrected Jesus is talking to you about the kingdom of God. Uh, so he's speaking to them for these 40 days, um, but he tells them, you're not ready for the mission. Now, I find this stunning. They had been with Jesus night and day for three years. None of us have experienced what they experienced. They've been with Jesus night and day for three years. They have served with him. They've been used by him. They've seen miracles themselves. They've been used 
uh, to heal the sick and to cast out demons. So they've been with him for three years. They know Christ better than anyone. They're now having conversations with someone who's come back from the dead uh, and is speaking to them, the God-man Jesus Christ. And yet he tells them that they must wait. He says you're to wait for, verse 4, the promise of the Father, which you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So he's saying, look, wait for the promise of the Father. You're going to be baptized. The word here literally means immersed. Uh, You're going to be baptized, immersed in the Spirit. You're going to be plunged in the Spirit. You're going to be enveloped with the power of the Spirit. And then he goes on and says, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, verse 8, you'll receive power, and when he comes upon you, you'll be my witnesses uh, in these various places. And so it just occurs to me, if these disciples who are listening to the resurrected Lord and have all this experience are needing to wait for power, how much more do we need power? None of us have have sat for 40 days learning about the kingdom of God from the resurrected Lord. And yet they must wait. The mission of the church is a supernatural mission, and it can only be accomplished with supernatural power. And in the familiar world of church world, we just get so accustomed to just running meetings doing our outreaches, having our gatherings. Uh, and, and we just get so accustomed to pulling, pull, just trying to pull it off that we lose sight of how drastically we need the Holy Spirit's power to accomplish what he's called us to accomplish. The Spirit empowers our witness so that in our weak and our feeble efforts, God works through us to save people through the witness of his people. The command is so instructive to wait. Now, matter of fact, Jesus is just, it's a very short passage where Jesus is with them. Verses 1, well, I guess he ascends by 11. So verses 1 through 11 is the only time Jesus is physically present uh, with everybody here in the book of Acts before he is ascended. But in in this time, he only gives one command. It's found in verse 4. And while staying with them, he ordered them, that's a command, not to depart to Jerusalem, but to wait. The only command he gives is wait. And so they are these days waiting in Jerusalem, just living with an awareness that we need more. We we are needy. We are dependent. Just being with Jesus as great as that was, we need something else to be ready for the mission. They need the Holy Spirit to indwell them, to come in them, to give them power. Now, the Holy Spirit will be given at Pentecost, chapter 2. And so they're waiting to Pentecost when this historic event will become, will happen. But I'm kind of looking at it and thinking, well, well, can't they be witnesses now? I mean, they like know it all. They know what they need to say. They've learned and experienced so much. It's great. We're going to have this big festival at Pentecost. But like between now and then, can't they be out being a witness? Why are they waiting? No, they need the Spirit to lead them, to empower them, to give them words, to use their testimony, to use their preaching, to change them, to embolden them. 
Now, we live on the other side of Pentecost, so the Spirit has been given. And if you're a believer, the Holy Spirit has come inside you because if he had not, you would not be a believer. Romans says that, that uh, if you don't have the Spirit, you're not a believer. So we, we have the Spirit, this, the other side of Pentecost, but we need the same awareness that they need. I don't think it's a stretch to say, well, we have the Spirit, so we don't need to uh, you know, be aware of our need or something like that. No, we need to live with the same awareness. They were living for these days aware that we need this power that Jesus spoke of, and we too need power. One of the reasons I'm eager for us to study Acts is because it's going to show us our need for God's power, and it's going to show us the availability of God's power to us as well. Because in this book, we find God's people praying for his power. We'll see that in Acts 4. They're praying for the power of God. We see them expecting his power. We see them experiencing his power. And it's a challenge to us. I mean, are you expecting God's power in you in some way, especially as a witness, which is what it says in verse 8? Are you asking for God's power? Are you anticipating that you'd be used as a witness for him in your family or in your workplace or wherever you do your life? Are, are you, is there a desperation for his power? And do you express that to him? This last week, uh, we were in our pastoral team meeting and we were praying. Uh, we pray for members of the church or we know there are challenges or problems, and, you, and we need God to help. We pray, intercede for members of the church. And as we were praying, the prayer just shifted at one point to pray for the Anna church plant and, and the meeting that's happening today. And, and someone in the room, I'm not sure I remember who it was, but someone in the room, I remember this, prayed along the lines of, Lord, would you, would you pour out your spirit? Because without you, uh, the people on this plant, they can do nothing. Nothing will happen without you. And I thought, you know what? Um, that is so true. And I've been involved in two church plants, this being one of them. And those seasons early on were the seasons in my life when I've been very aware for my need of God's power. Because if God doesn't do something, we don't make it. You know, nothing happens here. And we don't make it. And so it's easy in a pioneering kind of environment like that to see our need for the Lord. And so I thought that was a great prayer. That is wonderful. And we want to be praying for those who go on the plant that you will experience, you'll be aware of your need, and you will experience the power of God uh, in the process. But it is no different for those who stay is what I thought about. It's deceptive, isn't it? It's like, oh, man, some new, we need the Lord, as if we don't hear <laughs> Because, like, we already got a building, there's some lights and a microphone, so, you know. Well, that means nothing. We all need the Holy Spirit. Whether you're going to, uh, to Anna or whether you are uh, staying in Little Elm or wherever you live, uh, whichever, we all need the Holy Spirit's power to share with our family member, to, to, to live a life faithfully before our unbelieving boss, to give our testimony to our neighbor next door. We all need the Holy Spirit's power. Here's the third and final point. Mission means movement. So Jesus is actively present. The Spirit empowers mission, and mission means movement. Now, that's literally true. 
the word mission comes from a Latin word, uh, the Latin word missio, which means to send. So it, the word mission, which is not in the text, I understand, but it's a theme of the book that, that comes up. It, it means to send, and they certainly were sent. So it means to send, and he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so here's something I want us to see that we're going to see in the book, that there are two kinds of gospel movement coming from verse 8. The first is a movement towards people who are different, a movement towards different kinds of people. So it says that Jesus has been teaching them about the kingdom of God. And in verse 6, they say, hey, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And he says, well, it's not time, verse 7, for you to know the times or seasons that the Father is fixed, but you will receive power and you'll be witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, the end of the earth. So what they're saying is they're saying this, you're saying the Spirit's coming, so all the, the Old Testament, there's been this anticipation of what that means. And so now does that mean you're going to throw off Roman rule? Uh, are you going to take the Romans who are oppressing us and empower us to overthrow them and restore the kingdom of Israel so that Israel is back to its glory days, not, not uh, overseen uh, by this overlord, the Caesar, but we are independent and living for you freely again as Israel. Are you going to restore our kingdom? And he says, well, we're not going to tell you about all that, but here's what I am going to tell you. There's something much bigger than that's going to happen. The gospel is going to go to all kinds of people. It's breaking out of the barriers of right here. So it's going to start in Jerusalem. You're going to tell the good news to people who are around you. And then you're going to be empowered to go a little bit broader to Judea. And then you're going to go, surprise, to Samaria. They don't like the Samaritans. The Samaritans don't like them. As a matter of fact, a typical Jew, if you had to travel somewhere and Samaria was on the route, you walked around. You didn't walk through. They were half Jews. They were despised by the Jews. And so he says, here's what's going to happen when the Holy Spirit comes on you. He's going to move you towards those people you don't like. He's going to move you towards people that you're at odds with. He's going to move you towards people that are different than you. And you're going to tell them the good news because the Samaritans need Jesus. And then after that, it's not only that, but you're going to go to the end of the earth. That means you're going to go to, broadly speaking, the Gentiles. You're going to go to people that you won't even have a meal with, that you wouldn't even invite into your home to have dinner. Those are the people that you are going to go love, and you're going to take the good news, and I'm going to save them and build churches together where you're going to be in fellowship with them on equal ground. This is so unthinkable for us. Caleb did a great job last week explaining the barrier, even in the temple, between Gentile and Jew. Even a God-fearing Jew that was le- a Gentile that was leaning in, there was this barrier. And Jesus tears down that barrier. And so he says, you're going to be my witnesses to people who are so different than you that you are not in relationship right now. When the Holy Spirit comes, you are going to be involved in cross-cultural evangelism. You're going to cross cultural lines. It's going to, you're going to start in Jerusalem. That's very familiar. That's not a cultural line. But when you get to Samaria, it is a cultural line. And you're going to cross it with love empowered by the Spirit. And you're going to ultimately go to the ends of the world where people do not think like you. And this is exactly the outline of the book. The first few chapters happen in Jerusalem. 
Then Stephen is executed and martyred, and there is a scattering. And then in chapter 8, we see them reaching Samaria. And then by chapter 10, Peter is reaching the Gentiles with the gospel. And then towards the end, chapters 21 through 28, Paul is traveling ultimately as a prisoner to Rome, uh, appealing to talk to Caesar himself. So this verse 8 is the outline for the book. It actually happens because there's two kinds of movement here. One towards different kinds of people, but the second one is to different kinds of places. So they're going to move to different places as well, and the book traces that. It's not just that you're going to relate with folks who are different than you, but the gospel is going to move geographically outward from where you are to where God wants to take the gospel, which is to everyone, to the end of the earth. And so this is powerful as well, that we're going to see the gospel move through people uh, led by the apostles uh, throughout the book of Acts. And so both of these are true for us too. We're called to take the gospel across the street to people who may be different than us. And we are, caused, we are called to either go or at least support through prayer and finances and everything else uh, the gospel which is in faraway places, especially among the, those who are unreached by the gospel. The gospel starts here and it moves outward. And can't we celebrate this truth? Because we, most of us are not Jews, most of us are not from Jerusalem. We are the end of the earth. The gospel started in Jerusalem, and it came, and it reached us in the end of the earth. And now we start from where we are, and we look outward and say, may you take us to other ends of the earth with the gospel as well. So God calls us to this mission, and he gives us the Holy Spirit. So we're called to do our part to reach those who don't know Jesus, who are in Frisco, and then we could broaden out and say surrounding areas, all Judea, all Collin County, to Anna, we could say. And then ultimately through to our country, uh, you know, our broader city, our country, and to our world, to places like the Kwakum people in, uh, in Cameroon, where we'll be taking a mission trip to support missionaries in Cameroon in the spring. So it's across the street or across the globe. We're starting by praying for nations each Sunday as we gather, and hopefully you are in the prayer guide during your prayer times as well. I think that in this book, as we study it, we're going to see God has something massive for his people, massive for us as a church in the coming months as we see these themes lived out in the book, that Jesus is actively present, that the Spirit empowers the mission, and the mission means movement to different people and different places. And so our prayer is that God would disrupt our familiar, that he would shake up our usual. And in the place where we are, we would experience supernatural power for his supernatural mission. That God may use us as a small church to do our part in turning the world upside down with the love of Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.